Hello and welcome. You are listening to The Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And on today's show, we start to meet the humans of Dashdot. So we're taking a little bit of a step behind the scenes where we get to meet the humans that are behind Dashdot. And when Dashdot is the business that is behind The Investor Lab, you know, and the reason we do The Investor Lab is because we want to have a platform to be able to share uh, valuable insights, ideas, thinking paradigms that help to shape and grow you as an investor and help you to deliver, help to deliver you to a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. Um, the business that gives us the capability to do that is Dashdot. And that is where we help people on a one-to-one basis to help them to accelerate their property portfolios and to achieve that life that they want uh, if they need help. And if you need help too, or and reach out to us. But what we want to do now is we want to start to share. It's not just me and Gabby back here, right? We're not just, we're not rolling this boat ourselves. There's a whole team of amazing, wonderful human individuals with amazing stories and amazing values. Uh, and so this is our first step in, in bringing the team forward so that you could meet them before you meet them. Uh, and on today's show, we had a chat with Nick Densher, who he's been in the team for a little while now, and he's actually one of our um, uh, managers and a property acquisition manager and a team leader. So we talk a little bit about that. We also talk about his story and his journey. Where did he come from? How did he get here? What's his property journey look like? What are some of the biggest mistakes or he's made along the way or some truths that he can maybe share with other people? We go into all kinds of stuff and all kinds of territory, and I actually found it to be really uh, valuable and entertaining, uh, and also got a little bit emotional. And I really, I really like that. You know, it's uh, it's great when an episode makes you feel something. And I think that this episode is going to do that for you. And I'm really grateful for uh, the opportunity to to share this time uh, with you as well. So, without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it. Uh, enough waffle from me. Let's get into the show. And of course, make sure you like, rate, review, share, give this to a friend, family member, or loved one. And if you like this kind of content, make sure you reach out and let us know too. So that's enough from me. Let's get stuck right into it. And I'll see you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. Joining me today is a guy named Nick Densher. Now, Nick may be familiar to some of you people if you've had anything to do with our business behind the scenes, Dashdot, but this is the very first uh, episode or a first installment of a series that we're going to be rolling out ongoingly called The Humans of Dashdot, where we take a look at the human stories behind the scenes and try and help people to understand you know, w- what goes on behind here, who we all are, and it's not just the team, but also our, our clients, etc. cetera. Uh, and I think this is really going to be an interesting uh, exploration and an interesting discovery. And Nick, I'm excited to have you on the show. How are you feeling today? Yeah, I'm good. I'm excited to be here as well. It's, 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 we've had a few false starts of trying to do a podcast. So I'm excited. We're actually sitting um, opposite each other in the chairs. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. It's about, it's about time too. So, mate, I'd love to, I'd love to get into it. What I want to do in this, um, what I want to do in this episode is I really want to get a little bit into your uh, backstory. Now, a lot of people will, will have no idea who you are. We have a lot of listeners to this show who will never have met you and won't know what you do, who you are, and all that kind of stuff. So why don't we start with, um, you know, what do you do now? So tell us, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do at Dashdot, and then we'll take a little bit of a, a dig back into where it all started. So, so my current role is as the property acquisition manager. So I kind of and and, a, and the 
property team leader, property acquisition team leader. So I kind of look after the team that does the finding of the properties, the due diligence of the for for properties, and and then ultimately once we've given it, I've given it the tick of approval based on a client brief, and I present that to the client, and then work through that whole process with the client. So yeah. that's that's my day to day role at the moment. Yeah, awesome, and and. I mean, how like how long have you been doing this, and how did you get here? Like, what's what's the backstory? Because you haven't been you haven't been in property for for that long. No, so so my formal most recent formal training is an, is as an engineer. So I was previously yep. working as a flood engineer. Um, on the side, I was doing property investing, and then I actually mm. came to Dash Dot as a client. And I had so much fun that I um I called up after and said, "Hey, is there any way I can get to work with you?" And it just happened there was a job going, and and when that first started, I came obviously in with with very very green because I hadn't worked in real estate before, um and through that, you know that work, I picked up some work with Dashdot and then and then actually did my real estate license and that's got me up to where I am now. So yeah. Yeah, I've I've learned every little step of the way, I guess, under under the tutelage of Goose and Gabby. Um, yeah. up until this point. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty awesome that um I really love that story because you know you're a client who has now become, you know, one of the management team within the business and is helping to to guide and shape this journey for our clients. So I think it's really awesome because you've got the client side experience as well. But let's take a little take, let's take a little step back because uh, where whereabouts do you live at the moment? At the moment I'm in um, Nambucca, which is about half hour south of Coffs Harbour in New mm-hmm. South Wales. Yeah, and so you work fully remotely. Talk to me. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I've actually, I've actually, actually requisitioned my kid's cubby house, which is about <laughs> I don't know three meters by three meters, and turned it into the home office. So I put some new windows in, put an air conditioner in it when it was when it was summer. Um, done a few things to tidy it up, but that was really the um, emergency response to COVID coming and having to work from home. Mm. Um, and so that's where I am in, in Nambucca. I'm, I'm, yeah. I missed the rest where, of the question. Yeah. Where, 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 whereabouts did you grow up? Have you always lived in that area or where are you, where are you uh, from originally? Always in New South Wales, but prior to this, I was in Newcastle for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I actually grew up up, up up until my teenagerhood on the Central Coast, so up behind Gosford in a small sort of country area called Colneura. Yeah. And then I was in Newcastle for yeah, a good probably 10 years, and then I've been up here, I don't know, 15 years now. So I lived in Bellingen yeah. for a while in a township, and now I live on a little, what I call a farmlet, a little tiny, like a hobby farm, sort of hobby farm. ten acres out in the in the hills behind Nambucca, actually. Nice. Yeah, you, you've got the you've got the good kind of uh, the lifestyle balance going on there, where you get to work remotely from your from your hobby farm and and all that kind of stuff. So it's pretty good, it's a pretty good gig. It's so, it's so surreal, like to think. I'm buying properties for people and with clients like clients down in, you know, the high rises of Sydney and a property up in, you know, North Queensland or Western Australia from my little cubby house in Coffs Harbour. It's it's an amazing <laughs> thing to be able to do. It's awesome. I know, it's I it's it. phenomenal. It's it's just wild how much the world has evolved to give us the ca- the capability to do that kind of stuff, you know, because a few years ago that would have been, you know, probably unthinkable and now it's um now the fact that it's possible, I think it's awesome because it allows. It really is a testament to the fact that we actually all can live our best lives now, rather than just saying I'm going to do, I'm going to work now, and then hopefully get to some destination in the future where I can get to live the lifestyle I want. You know, it looks. It certainly seems as though you're putting yourself in a position to better have the best of both worlds, which is which is awesome. Yeah, yeah, and I love I love the juxtaposition that that 
like what's traditionally quite a sort of high, um, you know, suit wearing professional type job mm. that I can do from my little farm out in Coffs Harbour. And, and thought, like the new world order seems to be a bit more about what you do as opposed to how you look or how you how you dress or that kind of thing. And I, and I really love that. And to be judged on your performance as opposed to your, um, you know, how you look. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now you mentioned that you um, that you trained as an engineer uh, and you were working as an engineer and all that kind of stuff. But what what other what other career pathways have you had? Because I know that you you did a stint in the army, didn't you? Yeah, through uni, I was in the army reserves, and then I did a very small amount um, of full time service up out of Darwin on a, mm-hmm. um, on patrol boats, like patrolling for illegal fishing and so on off, off North Australia. Mm-hmm. So I did that. Um, so I was in the army for probably five or six years in total, but most of that was reserves that were doing weekends and and um, a couple of weeks away at a time kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so that was through uni. And then I came out of uni and I went into kind of consulting work in subdivision type stuff, water design and subdivisions. Um, so I was, I'm quite into water. And then out of that went into local government and then finally state government and then hopped from there into real estate most recently about probably almost 18 months ago now. Yeah, yeah. And when did you when did you first start having an interest in real estate? Uh, it was probably, I don't know, six or seven years ago now. What, what's, mm. what changed six or seven years ago was that my interest moved to investment as opposed to my principal place. So probably I've been looking at real estate for dreaming about you know, ideal properties for 20 years, but it's probably mm. 10 years I've started actually looking at investment properties. And the catalyst for that was that I read an investment book, or to take another step back, my, my brother-in-law's a finance, um, works in finance, a financial advisor, and I was kind of observing him and his partner's journey and, and how they kind of budget and all that sort of stuff, and that got me into budgeting. And I pulled out a, a finance What's it, like an investment book, a finance book, because um, yep. I was a bit worried we were getting left behind, to be honest. My partner and I were like, we're just kind of living day to day and just enjoying life, and that's awesome. But um, I'm worried in you know 20 years, we're, we're going to look back and go, holy shit, why didn't we do something? Yep. So I, I read this book, and basically the catalyst for me was it said, it said list all your, your net worth, essentially, all your assets, um, and then work out which ones are investments, i.e. income producing, and which ones are lifestyle, i.e. They, they allow you to live your life and they're for the enjoyment of your life. And mm. I pretty much had everything in my lifestyle asset and I had nothing in investment and that was a bit of an eye-opener for me. Yeah. Um, and that's from that, that's when we bought our first investment property. So we actually had our um, principal place then, or like a part of it, obviously, with the yeah. bank owning a, fit, a large proportion. And um out of that, we pulled some money out of the principal place and bought uh, a little house in Bellingen where we were living at the time. And that was yeah, the right. start of it, really. That was the start of it. So the place you bought in Bellingen, was that, did you buy that to, because you moved to Bellingen as well. So did you buy the place in Bellingen and then move into it or did you buy it purely as an investment? That was just as an investment. And we, we were looking specifically like at that end, like to, to jump forward a bit, Mm. Dash dots brought together a lot of the concepts that were kind of on the periphery of my understanding that I'd come to myself. So it's kind of just crystallized them and put them in a nice framework. So to take that step back again, what I was looking for then, I was I was I understood that cash flow was very important to, you know, for risk mitigation and ability to keep moving forward and that kind of thing. I didn't really understand how you how you can select different areas. And, and I only saw the properties outside my backyard, obviously. So I looked around in Bellingen. I was living in Bellingen, my principal place mm-hmm. then. I was looking for a specific investment property 
but I wanted it to be cash flow positive or neutral. So I was specifically looking for something that I could put a granny flat on because the, the yields in Bellingen typically just aren't, aren't going to be cash flow positive. Mm. So I looked for something that could put a granny flat on, bought a four bread brick house, and we actually put a granny flat on it within about two months. So we, and it was a removal house, like a, a second hand house on the back of a truck. They backed in there, reassembled, and then I did all the landscaping around it and put stairs and bits and pieces to sort of make it livable. Yeah. Um, and that's how the granny flat came about. Yeah, nice. And wasn't that right about the time that you um, became a dad, or or was it? There, isn't there some? Yeah. Isn't there some interesting story ar- around that? Yeah, so I've, I'd actually kind of already had a fair bit of um, contact with financiers and trying to get finance because we would at prior to that kind of epiphany about investment, we'd done a fair bit of renovation on our house and we kind of tried to get pull equity to do build a nice big deck and bits and pieces like that, or lifestyle assets, by the way. Um, and so I, I understood the finance game a little bit and I realised that um, as soon as we had a baby, our serviceability was going to drop due to our living costs going up. Mm. And my wife at that time was pregnant with our second child. So we already had our first. She was three, I think, or two. Um, and so she was pregnant. She was about towards the end of it. She was actually in labour. And I was like rushing to get this, the retaining wall finished so that I could get the final inspection from council so that I could get the occupation certificate so that I could refinance the loan prior to the baby popping out and getting on the books. <laughs> Whilst she's in labour, you're trying to do that. I, I was, and she, she was literally calling me up and going, oh, baby, I think I've got, I, I think I can do another hour. Okay, just keep push through, push through. <laughs> and I had another young fellow that was helping me on the retaining wall, so I was kind of back and forth a bit. Um, but yeah, that was, that was the last the last rush to the finish line on that. We actually made it. We got the occupation certificate and and refinanced because how I did it because I I really didn't want to do construction loans because of all the kind of quantity surveys you need and all the overheads that happen mm. with that. So I actually had a loan from my family, and then, but their understanding was that we'd refinance that once the granny flat was finished and then pay them mm. back. So transfer the the loan back to the bank um so that was that why that critical threshold was there to get that money to pay back the family and then um you know then hopefully it was all going to be cash flow positive from that point which it was nice do you have any regrets about that because that's obviously a you know there's obviously a lot going on there um i'm not i'm not sure i would say i have regrets about it i think it's an important part of my journey Mm. um i think it impacts my life a bit more than me in terms of that me not being there for that 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 critical period so much. I was obviously there for the birth, like when we went into hospital and that sort of thing. But just in that pre-labor stage, I wasn't there. She was there with with our three-year-old, and she was helping her and that kind of thing. But um, I, what I like about it is the grit, I guess. And we, Amy and I, talk about grit a lot and wanting to display grit to our to our children like you know getting that pushing through to get that last 10 percent of something done that often can just drag out um so that part of it in terms of my journey i, I find I, I find quite valuable so i wouldn't say i regret it no yeah awesome like really good really good insights uh, particularly about the grit piece and you know sometimes sometimes it's in those tough moments that you really need to you know really stand by what what the values are even even when it's um even when it can be really challenging so Okay, so you got the you got the place in Bellingen with the granny flat that worked out all right for you. Yeah, it did so when we bought it. I think it was getting four and a half percent 
gross yield or something of that order. And after we did the granny, it bumped it up to 6.2%. So it was made it cash flow positive. I can't remember exactly how much yeah. buy or whatever. But, yeah. you know, it was a bit of a leap of faith and we wasn't, weren't sure if it was going to rent. We were fairly green to the whole game. Mm. Um, apart from that, having that fundamental understanding of wanting to preserve our loan serviceability and be cash flow positive for risk mitigation because we didn't want to have, mm. you know, um, a negatively geared property hanging over our head because we're fairly lifestyle focused. Mm. Um, but yeah, it worked out pretty well in the end. Yeah, awesome. And I did and refinance so- it. I got my money back from the granny flat and then a little bit, not a, not a whole lot, but I think it cost me about 80000 to build and I probably got about 100000 back from the bank. Interesting. But the extra money would have been my my actual labour putting into it for sure. Like if I'd paid someone to do the whole lot, it would have cost me probably 120 to do. Yeah, so okay, it wasn't, got it. didn't really give me any uplift if I account for my labour that I did on the job. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. So um, we don't. I don't want to like do a full, you know, hyper analysis on your portfolio but i'm interested like was it uh, when did you at what point did you decide to work with dash dot like when did you was that after that property or did you get any other ones or tell me a little uh, bit so about had- that and i'm also just i'm going to back it up with another piece of the question i'm also interested to know whether or not you think you would do granny flats again knowing what you know now so talk to me about those kind of aspects so i um i was ready to buy another property it was just mm-hmm. probably four or five years later uh, probably a bit less, maybe four years. So we pulled money out of out of that property, mm-hmm. equity out of that property, and we're rolling that forward into another property. Again, I was looking in my backyard because that's all I knew. And I was actually onto a property that was very similar, had about 5% gross yield. So it was almost cash flow neutral, like depending on how you calculate it. And that was one of the conversations <laughs> we had on early on, Juice. <laughs> depending on how you look at I it, said, yeah. I said to you, oh, oh, yeah, I've got this one. It's, it's about cash flow neutral. And, he, and you asked me the parameters and you said, oh, you think that's cash flow neutral? And I said, yeah, it's pretty close. And he said, okay. And, that, and you, I, was, I thought that was nice that you didn't kind of go, no, nah, that's not cash flow neutral, mate. You kind of just um, said, well, if that's yeah. what you believe, then that's okay. Um, yeah, yeah, but anyway, yeah. so, 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 so I was looking at this property in Nambucca, which is just <laughs> up the road from where we were living at the time. And it was getting yep. about 5% um, gross yield as well. Same thing, mm-hmm. had a, quite a big backyard, had access for another, either a second house or a granny flat or something. Mm-hmm. And I was almost ready to pull the trigger on that. And I stumbled across a dash dot ad wherever. And I thought, well, what's what's the harm in having a, you know, following this little rabbit hole to see where it goes? And we had a discussion and pretty much I explained to you that that was where I was going to go by this house in Nambucca. I was getting 5%. Um, and, and from our conversation, basically, you, you said that we can do better than that. And I, and I said, well, if you can do better than that, let's let's do it. Let's give it a crack. Mm. Um and, and where we landed, so then I became a client, and where we landed was that I, I bought a house basically off the shelf that was getting the same kind of parameters that I was going to get by manufacturing that yield by putting a secondary dwelling on or whatever. So mm. I, I would have hopefully landed somewhere about 6.5 gross just in my backyard in Nambucca, not understanding mm. about anything about capital growth or anything like that. Um, but as it was, we bought some um, west of Brisbane, and we bought a house off the shelf that was getting about 7% gross. And all I had yeah. to do was sign all the paperwork and, and go through that the whole purchasing process. And that was it. Yeah. And that and was a bigger epiphany for me. Yeah. And just, to clarif- just to clarify, off the sh- by off the shelf, you mean, you know, an established property in an established neighborhood as opposed to, you know, some something. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm, but I, I meant the point is that I didn't have to do anything to it. I bought it as yep. a complete 
um, existing unit, an existing house, yeah, but yeah, a, a pre-existing house. Um, and then that's when it, I've kind of realised that, you know, if I'd done that first, I wouldn't have had that, like apart from speaking earlier about not having regret, regrets. But if I'd, if I'd done that the first time, then I wouldn't have had that, you know, three months of, of like working every day on this granny flat for the first house. Mm. And, and that kind of just made me think, well, that's a much smarter way to move forward. There's lower risk. I don't have exposure for paying out money to tradies and, and doing um, having downtime for rent and all that sort of stuff. So basically, mm. um, it converted me to shopping outside my area, which at the time I didn't, wouldn't have had the skill set to do. So Dashdot helped me on in that respect. Um, and it opened my eyes to it being possible to get cash flow positive properties that are pre-existing. You don't have to manufacture the ca- cash flow by doing intensification of the site or anything like that. Yeah. Well, cash cash flow is easy, but it's the cash flow growth bit, which is which is the which is the fun part, right? And I think you've done all right out of those out of the properties you bought because you've you're on to what property number three now with Dashdot. I think is where where you're about where you're up to. Uh, number th- yeah, it's number three with Dashdot, so my fourth. That's right. Yeah, and and they've all kind of just rolled forward from that first property. So we haven't got an amazing savings rate, and we've got we've got various projects on our little farm. Where we're sort of building a house and stuff, so that sucks mm. a lot of our money. So pretty much we made that first jump for that first property, and it, and it, the up the up to four now will be just rolling that equity forward each time. But just to take a quick step back, like at that time, I didn't really understand capital growth. Mm. I was just like, you just buy a house and it doubles every ten years. That that mm. that old chestnut. Um, so I didn't even know what I didn't know at the time, and I just bought in areas that I like to live, obviously, because I like to yep. live there. So everyone must like to live there, and that was that was what I th- thought was the the main game. Yeah, 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 totally, and that's and that's super common as well. I mean, like I know when I started, when when Gabby and I bought, you know, the off the plan apartment and all that kind of stuff, we had we literally we were just. We just thought, oh, property doubles every seven every seven years, right? So it doesn't matter what you buy; you just buy a property and it doubles every seven years. It's like that, is it? Yeah, yeah, cool. And I think that's one of the biggest um, one of the biggest problems that that most people don't know what they don't know and and are stuck believing all of these uh, myths and mistruths. So, what are, I'm interested to know what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned in your property journey so far through through you know, through all of the stuff you've gone and, or maybe what's, what's one lesson that you can share with, with the listeners to help guide them? I think the biggest thing for me, like, and this is a reflection through working with clients and stuff now, mm-hmm. is that, and it's something I'm still trying to wrap the words around to make, to make it clear to, to clients and to people generally, is that mm-hmm. um, something, I don't know the exact statistics, but, but the average property investor buys... 95 or 90 percent of them or something by one you probably know the statistics yeah, statistics yeah. So, 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 um, 70 71 percent by one property uh and uh and further 19 percent will get to two but that means not nine uh 90 percent of property investors never get past two properties yeah yeah so the, so the point being if your intention and my intention with property is to move towards a life of choice basically where i don't have to have the salary dictating the kind of work I put myself in or the kind of work I do. Um, and to get to that target, you need more than two properties. You probably, for, for me, I probably need of the order of, you know, somewhere between five and 10 properties. So the default thinking, the point is the default thinking, the average investor, the default thinking is going to get you to one or two properties. 
if you want to get past that, then you need to have a paradigm shift in the way that you um, understand real estate. So the point being that your default thinking is not going to get you there. You need to work some edges and push some boundaries. And, mm. and I, I had that happen in an accelerated fashion by working with by um, working as a client with Dashdot and then working in, in Dashdot and kind of chewing through the nitty-gritty of how to do it all as well. Um, but the point is the, you, your current thinking won't get you where you want to go. Mm. And if you want to get there just by trial and error, it might take you 20 years to realise the formula, the secret formula. Um, but if you employ a, a professional, um, they, they've already got that knowledge. They've seen, they've, they've bought, you know, 500 houses or whatever. So they've had 500 um, refinements of the technique and the methodology to, to help mm. clients get where they want to go. So the realisation for me would be that if, if I had my time again, and I didn't know what I you know, and I was at the same level of understanding I was then. And I've, if I'd if I'd come across it, I would have used a buyer's agent similar to what we we do now, mm. um, because I didn't have the skills or the resources to buy out of area. And and even if I wasn't within Dashdot now, I don't know if I'd have those as now, even as an individual, because mm. the organisation has the ability to leverage um, lots of resources, lots of research houses, and things like that that the average individual doesn't get. Mm. Um, sorry, I've kind of just gone off in the weeds a bit there. No, it's okay. It's good. I would have shut you up if we were going in the wrong direction. But I thought I actually thought it was. I thought I actually thought it was really really insightful because you're right. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a hard one for people to get their heads around. I know. I I mean, I get emails and stuff from from property investors all the time. And I had one just um, just a couple of days ago, and the email was basically said something along the lines of, "Hey, um, can you buy me an off market property in one of these three suburbs?" Um, now, incidentally, there were three suburbs that we were buying in about 18 months ago, but, but we're no longer buying in. Uh, and I just thought it was a really strange request. I said, well, why, why, why specific, like for an investment property, why specifically those suburbs? Why specifically off market? Um, and it was just interesting to understand, the, just to look at the way that they were answering. And it, and it just showed, you know, there's a lot of, a lot, there's a lot of blinkers and they're blinkers that people don't know that they have. Like there's, there's just a lot of, a lot of people are really in the dark when it comes to how to actually get further ahead, how to break through that two property ceiling, how to get to that, mm. you know, like the 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 prevailing look, obviously it's it's not about the number of properties because you could have 10 properties at a hundred thousand dollars and that probably wouldn't want to get you where you want to go. And uh, vice versa, one property at a million dollars is probably not going to serve your needs either, right? So it's not necessarily about the number of properties, but you know, providing you're buying somewhere around, you know, four or five hundred thousand dollar properties, you're probably going to need you know, three to five, probably around about five properties to really be able to set yourself up to live the lifestyle you want. And the, the really sad thing is that as as we just discussed, you know, 90% of property investors never get past two, which means that they never actually get to achieve the financial goals that they're after and subsequently never get to that that destination, you know, the lifestyle that they that they want. So I think it's a really important, uh, a really important conversation to have. So but- Yeah, and I, I think like I think the fundamental issue, the, the the issue with the average Joe, with me on the street, making the leap to a buyer's agent, is we don't recognise it as a profession. The average public doesn't recognise it as a profession. So typically, I don't know it's changing a bit now, but people don't go to the doctor and say, "Hey, I want you to prescribe me either this or this for this mm. thing that I've got." You go and say to the doctor, "Hey, what do you think's best given my symptoms?" Mm. And um, it's the same 
in, in my opinion, with, with a buyer's agent, like you're deferring to their knowledge because not necessarily because they're, they're certainly, you know, in many cases not smarter than you or more, not more trained than you or whatever, but they've got a specialisation in an area that you, that by default, you don't, you don't, you, you're not going to learn by default how to invest in real estate. You might have a, a fluky win or um, over time, if you do lots of research, you can get there. But same, if you, you if you want to go and work out how to fix a broken leg, you don't go and study medicine. You go and talk to a doctor and they, they tell you how to do it because they've done all the training. Um, mm. And I remember the thing that, that knocked me over when I came in and started working with Dashdot. I felt like I looked at all this, the tools that we had at hand and I felt like this, this just isn't fair. <laughs> so it's like yeah. when I was thinking of, you know, me – at that time, working in Dashdot, competing against myself a year ago as an average buyer in the street trying to compete for the same property, and then Dashdot's got all these tools, research tools at its at its disposal. It's got um, lots of training and negotiation and and um, property analysis and all this stuff. And you can just like how, how can how could anyone compete with what we're doing? An average Joe on the street. The only way they could is if they dedicated themselves. You know. 50 hours a week to doing it and learning and trial I, and even, error. It, even then, even then, like they're just the, the, like the, the cost of access to all of the information is just totally probably un, unattainable. So yeah, like I say, and, and if, if I, if I wasn't working at Dashdot next week um, and I bought another vest, investment property, I'd still probably come to Dashdot because, you know, as an individual, you just can't dedicate the time that you need to dedicate and you don't have access to all the tools and the research that, that we've got. Yeah, totally. Well, I want to kind of step away. I want to kind of step away from from Dashdot a little bit. I want to kind of dig into a few other uh, few other things as well because it seems to me that you've been on a uh, a bit of a journey, you know, yourself, right? And I'm interested, you know, in the in the just in the fact that you were in the military and then you went into engineering and you've got to focus on lifestyle and you know, there's I think there's some. I'm, I'm very interested to know, like what. Like, what are the biggest beliefs that have shaped your journey? Like, there must have been, because you're, I'll just put it simply, you're not like the average, you're not like the average Joe on the street. You know, I don't know many people who who act and think in the way that you do and and have the commitment to their values and to their lifestyle and to their vision of who they want to be in in the world, right? And that doesn't that doesn't just happen, you know, for no reason, right? And so I'm interested to know what. Like what catalyst events you mentioned? You mentioned about your brother, um, you know, being in finance, and then you read that book. If you remember the name of the book, that'd be awesome too. But I'm interested to know, like, what what beliefs, what belief systems have really shaped who you are today? Yeah, the, the thing that comes to me, like, I, it, and it seems um, paradoxical as well, given the industry I work in, or I guess, is that I'm I'm quite environmentally driven. Mm. I don't know if it is paradoxical because then the, this, at the same time, a lot of our clients that come, they've got a, a very strong underlying environmental conscience and sustainability conscience. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. That's that's probably not a fair statement to say it's they're they're at um, you know, opposite ends. But the point is, I've always been driven by environmental responsibility, and I when I before the the couple of years before I started in that investment journey, I was like really strongly into reducing my personal footprint so I didn't have it we didn't have a car my family didn't have a car we had our first child up until about two we just um, rode bicycles around um we went on a big cycle tour my wife and I just before our first born for about six months um 
and refuse to do plane travel and like pretty at the relatively extreme end of environmental um, consciousness. And I was a bit of a, a ranter then as well. Like I was kind of a bit um, like a convert and wanted to get everyone on board and that kind of thing. So that's a bit really been my underlying drive is to have minimal footprint on the world and to foster a connection with, you know, the, with the earth, with, nat- with the natural world for, for me in the day-to-day and my family and my kids now. And that's kind of why we've landed where we land. Mm. where we've landed and um and the investment side of it is really just a way of facilitating the the the, um day-to-day living of that value set so the more i can buy back my time the more i can immerse myself in those kind of you know activities that deepen that connection with nature basically yeah that's awesome that's awesome. So, so the, the the investment is a means to live out those values on a much deeper and and more connected level. Then it is, yeah. It's just a vehicle. It's exactly right. And it's it's funny. Like it feels like you say, I'm not like the average, you know, real estate agent in inverted commas. But like <laughs> neither you, if you am talk I. A, I know, I know. And that's the beauty of, of the of the team and the the, um, yeah. the organization that we're working. That the like I, I did. Um, I don't know what I call probably ancestral skills is probably a good thing. So I didn't and learnt, you know, how to make fire by friction and do mm. tracking and paint myself up with camo and go like and live in the bush and build a shelter out of sticks and leaves and stuff like that. I did a kind of got down into that field a fair bit. Mm. Um, and yeah, and that kind of ties in with the environmental side. I'd studied permaculture as, as like not as a profession, but as an extracurricular. Mm. And I did do a bit of consulting in it as well, but same kind of thing. It's It's kind of, seeming at one side it looks like the opposite of of what you'd put a standard real estate agent um persona in yeah you know what i mean um so what the takeaway for me from that is that yeah it's not it's not about the properties it's not about flashing around money or getting super rich it's about real estate as the vehicle to get to the lifestyle that i want to live for me and for my kids my family and and for their kids yeah totally yeah and it's yeah go on I was just going to say it's more than a one generation thing. Like, um, if I could, if my parents were able to have given me the opportunity that I think I'm going to be able to give my kids, then I think I would be a different person to, to what I am today. And, and, do you, think it'd be, do you think it'd be better or worse? Like, because there's, 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 you know, I, I was reading an article recently, you know, about whatever wealthy people who are not going to hand down an inheritance. So they say they're not going to hand down an inheritance, but when they've got a hundred million dollars, they're only going to hand down, you know, maybe one to 10%, right? So it's still a, still a chunk of cash, right? But I'm interested, like, obviously it's purely hypothetical because you're not in that situation, but let's say, let's say your grandparents had started, uh, a real estate investing legacy and have built up that and and your life would probably be potentially be very different right now. And I'm wondering if you think that might be better or worse, knowing who you are and and where you're at. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a get out of jail free card, certainly. Like I think there's still, um, you know, factors that are going to cause you to have self-growth. It's mm. not going to all be roses. You're going to still have bump up against you know, self-limiting beliefs that you're going to have to push through and you're going to have challenges and trauma in your life and everything. But I think I would have been, I think I could have give, I could give more to the world if I didn't have to um, have salary as a factor in the day-to-day work that I do for the world, you know? Mm. 
So if I could just go and do, um, if if factor didn't, if 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 income didn't feature in what I chose to do for my work, I think that would, um, you know, I'd probably be in it, be in a in a totally different direction. I don't know what that'd be. Yeah, totally. And it's really interesting that that we've gone into into this area because, like, fundamentally, I, I was kind of like you, you know, growing up, I was. A bit of a uh, for, when I was younger, I, I only ever wanted to I, either be the prime minister. I wanted to either be a lawyer because I love debating, um, or the prime minister. Like that's it, not just a politician, but the prime minister because I wanted to change things. I wanted to change society. And then as I started growing up, I realized that no one likes politicians or lawyers, so that wasn't really that wasn't really that exciting. Um, but then you know I you know was was teaching permaculture in Ethiopia, and you know I got into you know you know native native edible edible native plants and would go bush just with a pocket knife and some you know some basic stuff and just go go bush for the weekend all that kind of stuff and really wanted to get back but it was all driven but a lot of you know I kind of went down this rabbit hole of like well how can you completely change society and I I just got to a point where I couldn't see a pathway to do that without helping people to elevate their financial standing because if mm. you can help people to escape from the from the paradigm that they're in where they have to trade their time for money and give them the capability to be able to do and that being said what what some people do for money right now is the thing that they would do whether they were getting paid or not. And that's awesome. But I think mm. that there's a lot of people who would maybe spend their time a little differently and it might be spending time giving back and it could be helping others or it could be helping the environment or it could be in some way shaping or it could even just be, you know, having the time and space to create and to be able to create new masterpieces of music and art and experience and create a more, you know, abundant and uh, and enriched enriched world. You know, that's kind of my, my vision and, and desire. So... Oh, cool. I'm glad we ended up here. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The thing that's changed for me in, in my life between like the, the pre-investment and post-investment was pre-investment, I, I was kind of like, why do you need money to do all that? I'll just go mm. and do it now. Like I'll just go and, you know, take friends on bushwalks to connect them with nature rather than um, going and working in a paid job and just do the, do the take people on bushwalks for free or, you know, not focus on the income at the start. But then as as I got older, I, I kind of realised that I'm not going to have this capability and physicality for my whole life and the ability to um, to have, to live on the smell of an oily rag like I could, like I was when I was 20 or whatever. Mm. Um, and so I've kind of been pushed to, by that realization to go well i do need to sort out my finance financial future um mm. so that i can i can continue doing it in my older because i don't want to be like you know 60 and, and living on the pension um and in that same not not that there's anything wrong with living on the pension but that not being able to do the things that i want to do because i can't afford to fill the car or go out um you know, doing the doing the things I want to do, go out diving, or that's the other things I like doing. Yeah. So yeah, it's investing now for my future self, basically the financial future self. Awesome, love it. Okay, well, I've got I've got a, I've got a question for you, right? As we're probably moving towards the the latter stages of our of our time together, and I've, it's a big question, and it's going to probably challenge you a little bit. But imagine that it's your last day on Earth. Many, many, many years from now, you're old, you know, you're 80, 90, however, you've, you've lived a full life, you've accomplished everything that you wanted, you've built your property portfolio, you've given you've everything that you could wildly, every, all of your goals, dreams, aspirations, you have achieved all of it. But for some reason, 
on your last day, it's all going to disappear. You're not able to give any of it, pass any of it down to your friends, your family. Now, everything's going to cease to exist the moment you cease to exist. Nothing will stay. Nothing you've written, nothing you've created, nothing you've accumulated, nothing. The only thing that you can leave on this earth is three truths, three simple truths. What three truths would you leave behind? I don't know if I could find if I can think of three. But of what, while you're saying that whole thing, I was thinking, I thought you were going to say, "What would you do for that last thing?" And I'd, I'd spend time with my kids. So, yeah, I think the answer is spend time with loved ones. This is the one one truth. And the, the, I can't. I don't know if I can spring to the other two. Let me have a think. Another yeah, way I to think, think about. Like, yeah. The thing that yeah. keeps coming to me is kindness, like act with kindness. And that's something that changed in my journey as well. I was, a, I was, uh, did go through a stage of being a bit of a, um, a ranter and a convert to environmentalism. And what I've changed to now is kind of meeting people where they're at and, mm. and you know, in, truly and actively engaging with people where they're at. And to me, that's kind of a tenet of, of kindness, not trying to impose my values or where, where I am on, on my journey to them and and so i think you know active kindness would, would be another fundamental truth that i that i have yeah and maybe one more and the way to think about it would be maybe just like if this was just one thing and just one thing that you could pass on to your kids the only thing that you left behind for your family and for future generations one final truth that you could encourage everyone to live by or to stand by um like it's probably coming back to what i the, the kind of basis of what we've been discussing is to spend time with nature, I think. Yeah. So spend just time with them. Mm, go on. I think it makes you a better person. Well, for me, it makes me a better person. I can't speak for everyone. I don't impose that on other people. But my fundamental truth is it makes me a better person, makes me a more whole person, makes me, um, you know, live a better life the more time that I, or the deeper my connection with nature comes, and that comes from time with nature. Yeah. One hundred percent. I think that's good. So, so number one, spend time with family. Number two, act with kindness. And number three, spend time in nature. Yeah, that sounds like that. solid to me. <laughs> I like, I like that too. I like that too. I think that's good. I think that's good. Well, Nick, thanks, man. I really, I really enjoyed the conversation. It's, um, it's actually gone. It's really good. We've covered a lot of good ground. Is there anything that you, um, might want to add or anything you might want to share before we wrap it up, or do you feel like we've, we've gone in a lot of good directions? No, no, it's been it's been fun. It's really cool to, you know, have someone actively listening to you and asking you questions. That's been really fun. Thanks, Goose. Um, there's not not anything in particular I want to add on to that. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it, and uh, I really appreciate you and everything you're doing, uh, and all the value you bring to all of our clients and the and the care and consideration you show to all of our clients and also the rest of our team. So, thanks for being a part of this journey, and thanks for thanks for everything you do.